Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, this is the chapter in which we have recorded for us the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, which consequently led to the disapproval of the Jewish religious leaders because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath and told this man to carry his, his bed, his, his uh, bedroll on the Sabbath. And uh, verse 16 says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, 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 I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The ministry of the Lord that we have considered so far has actually taken place over about a year's time. We believe that Jesus spent eight months teaching and healing in Jerusalem and in the area surrounding Judea, in that region there of Judea. And then while on his way to the region of Galilee to the north, Jesus crossed through the region of Samaria and spent two days there. Uh, That's when he did... um, spent time uh, ministering to the the woman by the well and to the other uh, people there uh, near Sychar. Jesus then went to Galilee, and we believe that his great Galilean ministry had been in progress at least for four months when he healed the official's son. Remember how Jesus healed the official's son merely by speaking and willing his healing. It didn't matter that the boy was 16 miles away. The next great miraculous sign that we considered was the healing of the paralyzed man who was by the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Though Jesus was still involved in what has been called his great Galilean ministry, he had taken a brief trip to Jerusalem to attend a feast, probably Passover. 
It was in connection with Jesus' healing of the paralyzed man on the Sabbath that he came into conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. The problem was that this man was carrying his bed or his mat on the Sabbath in obedience to the direct order of Jesus, but in disobedience to the religious leaders. There was also the problem of Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath. But have you recall that the Jewish religious leadership had established 39 categories of work? And according to their rules, it was considered unlawful for one to carry a burden on the Sabbath, especially something as significant as one's bedroll. But Jesus had contradicted their man-made laws, and consequently they were not happy. And uh, we are told in chapter 5, verse 16, that the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 18 tells us that the Jews were even plotting to kill him. And the reason was restricted not only to his breaking of the Sabbath, but also because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And the specific statement that created angst with the religious leaders was what Jesus said there in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. That statement helps us to understand what is proper Sabbath observance. As part of the Ten Commandments, we are told in the Fourth Commandment to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There we go on to, to read uh, as part of the Fourth Commandment that you are given six days to work, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, you are not to do any work. And the pattern, God says, comes from creation week, according to which he worked six days and rested on the seventh and there's a tendency to go off the rails into two errors in relation to the fourth commandment, which has to do with remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The one error more common among Christians today is to pretty much ignore the fourth commandment and to insist that it is no longer binding. Now, generally, Christians can agree that we should worship God, but the idea that it has to take place on one particular day each week Sunday being the New Testament Sabbath in that pattern of a seventh day after six work days, and that the Sabbath is to span the entire day, remember the Sabbath day, these things are, are not considered by many to be binding. And as a result, in today's churches, there are weekly worship services on Thursdays, on Fridays, on Saturdays, and even if it is on Sunday, there is usually only one service with typically an unapologetic explanation that they are there to get their worship done so that they can go on to do the other things that they want to do on the weekend. And as for the mandate of not working on Sunday, that has also gone by the wayside for many professing Christians who do regular work and shopping on Sunday like they would do on any other day. So one way that people go off the rails is to basically have no Sabbath day observance. The other way that people can go off the rails is to regulate the Sabbath like the Jewish religious leaders did to the point where you wonder if there is anything that you can do because it seems like virtually any kind of activity could be considered work. Well, Jesus points us down the rail between both of these extremes with his answer, my father is working until now and I am working. Notice the wording of verse 17 that 
with these words, Jesus is answering his opponents. Notice that he's answering his opponents. We don't read of any actual question or questions coming from the religious leaders. Um, the explanation for that, maybe there were actual questions that were directed at Jesus that are not recorded for us. It's possible, but I think more likely Jesus sovereignly knew their opposition. He knew the plots that were being made against him, and his statement is his basic answer to their concerns. And what is interesting to note is that the Jews and Jesus could agree on the first part of what Jesus said when he said, my father is working. The Jews knew that by the father, Jesus was referring to God, and it was widely accepted by the Jews that, of course, God has continued to work after the work of creation. If he didn't continue to work, there would be no providence, right? If God was, uh, didn't continue to be active, everything of creation would fall away into to oblivion if God was not actively, actively upholding and guiding his creation. And there were four eminent Jewish rabbis who maintained that God cannot be charged with violating the Sabbath, and they offered an explanation for why this is so. And the main idea is based on the thinking that for us to carry anything from one domain to another is a violation of the Sabbath, which is exactly what this healed man did as he carried his bed from the pool, presumably to his home, or at least throughout the city. Meanwhile, it is not a violation of Jewish laws on the Sabbath if you were to carry something within your own home or on your own property. So how does this relate to God? Well, since for God, this is again what the Jewish, these four eminent Jewish rabbis argued, they said that since for God, the entire universe is his domain, it's not possible for God to do any work outside of his domain. Or another way to state the matter is that since God is omnipresent, God fills the whole world. And therefore, all of his activity is like what you and I would do within the privacy of our own homes. And so this is the way the Jews explained how God is not guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And uh, this argument Jesus is now applying to himself as the basis for why he is to be allowed to work on the Sabbath. Now, our explanation for why the man did not violate the Sabbath by carrying his mat also lines up with Jesus' answer, but in a different way. We don't define work as the Jews did. For us, the work that is forbidden in connection with the Sabbath is only the kind of work associated with making a living. The work on the Sabbath of, let's say, showering, shaving, doing your hair, getting dressed, eating, traveling or walking to church, the work of preparing meals, the work of cleaning up after meals, the work of worship are all activities that we would argue are outside of the purview of what was intended by work in the fourth commandment. I remember a professor in seminary making a statement about the, the Sabbath that applies to the very point Jesus here is making. The professor said to our class that our Sabbath Sundays should be so filled with worship, morning and evening services, fellowship and works of mercy, that at the end of, the, uh, of each Sunday, at the end of each Sabbath, we should just collapse into bed exhausted. Now, while I think there is a place for physical rest on Sundays, it's, I think, part of God's design for the day that I think he was overlooking, yet I think my professor was right in arguing that the day should not be about leisure. Think of what the world considers to be the perfect Sunday, 
right? It's, it's a Sunday without work. It's, a, it's the Sunday of sleeping in, having a leisurely brunch, socializing, and then maybe doing some other relaxing activity, taking a walk, reading a book, uh, watching TV, engaging with social media, et cetera, and et cetera. In other words, the Sabbath for the world is about R and R rather than serving God. And uh, this lines up with what Jesus is saying, for Jesus is saying that God the Father in his rest has continued to work. And what is implied in the context of the Sabbath is that God has rested after creating the world, but his rest is not to be equated with idleness. The rest is from the, sp the specific work of creation. Meanwhile, God has continued to be very active in providence. He's been very active in guiding all of history toward the end that he has prepared for it, which is the salvation of his people in the Lord Jesus Christ. And while Jesus is answering the Jewish objection to what he is doing on the Sabbath by pointing out that God's own example proves that the Sabbath is not a day of idleness, he makes a, a greater and actually much more controversial point of connecting what he is doing with what the Father is doing. He's essentially arguing that the reason that allows God to continue to work is the same reason that allows him to work. In other words, the work of mercy, of healing this paralyzed man, and even the work of ordering this man to carry his mat, these things are all part of his work, and work that he claims he is able to do without any violation of the Sabbath in the same way that God can claim to do work and not violate the Sabbath. Even the Jews agreed that the Father was above breaking the Sabbath because the entire universe is his. And so for Jesus to claim he is working on the Sabbath without breaking the law for the very same reason that the Father can is really a claim that Jesus is making of deity, and the claim is that the entire universe is his. It's exactly what the Jews understood Jesus to be doing. By calling God his own father, he was, to their way of thinking, making himself equal with God. It's both interesting and sad to note how so many today rationalize away Jesus' claim to deity. While these Jewish leaders understood and they acknowledged what Jesus was asserting about himself. Now, they didn't agree with what he was saying, but they at least didn't distort or minimize his intended claim. In contrast, today are those who say that by claiming to be equal with God, Jesus was claiming to be another God, as though there can be more than one ultimate being. Think of it. How can a person even conceive of two beings completely equal in divinity and both God in the same way? You really can't. So you have the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other religious cults who will claim that Jesus is divine, but not in the same sense as the Father or Jehovah God. They say Jesus is another God or a lesser God, but certainly not to be equated with the Father. And I use that word equated there on purpose. The Greek word here means equal, which as applied to God means equal in power and glory. Jesus is equal in power and glory to the Father, or it can mean identical which means that, as applied to Jesus, that he is God, that he is the same in essence, the same in substance as the Father. And usually these 
same people along with others attack the deity of Jesus and his claim to be equal with the Father by toning down the character of Jesus' sonship. So the Mormons say that Jesus is the son of Elohim, who was born in time through Elohim and his wife, so that Jesus is, according to the Mormons, a created being and therefore not eternal. And it is said by many others that Jesus is a son of God in basically the same way we are as adopted children of God, though they might argue that Jesus has a special relationship with the Father, but in the end, he is just a man. Notice, in contrast, the Jews rightly understood that Jesus' claim to be working without breaking the Sabbath like God, his Father, was a claim to deity. The Bible is clear that there is only one God, and that is a truth that the Jews absolutely understood, a truth that they would never have compromised. And so for Jesus to claim to be equal with God is a claim to be the one God, to be the same God as the Father and Jehovah and Elohim, not a lesser God with divine-like attributes, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses will say, and not just another God among others, like the Mormons and others will say. And what Jesus does in the rest of this chapter is, is to defend his claim to be the divine Son of God, the Messiah and Savior of sinners. And more specifically, what follows is an explanation of how it is that Jesus is equal with God. Jesus was indeed claiming to be equal with God, but what did he mean? Well, let me state from the beginning some principles that must be kept in mind as we seek to understand who Jesus is. I'd first of all point you to the clear teaching, the clear testimony of Scripture that there is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. We have Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally, you shall have no other gods besides me, that is, next to me or in addition to me. And second, the Bible is clear that, and this is the second main principle, so not only is there, there one God, but the Bible is also clear that there are personal distinctions within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is where the mystery of the Trinity arises. I think our natural way of thinking is that three persons all claiming to be deity would mean that there are three gods. But again, we must go back to the clear and unequivocal principle of Scripture that there is one God. So somehow there are three persons within the one God. And this is what we are forced to believe because the Bible is clear about the fact that there is one God, only one God, but also just as clear that the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And these same principles were introduced, you remember, by the Apostle John in the opening of this gospel, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so what we see is both unity and distinction within the Godhead. The Word, who John a few verses later is said to have glory as of the only Son from the Father. So he's saying very clearly that the Word is the Son. He says that the Word, the Son, is God, but is also with God the Father. He is both God and with God. 
And while we can't fully wrap our minds around the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one God in three persons, nevertheless, there are some truths that Scripture, that scripture teaches that helps us to understand how this is possible. One thing, it is clear that God is one in essence. Our confession says that the persons of the Trinity are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. We know God is a spirit. Jesus has just said that back in chapter 4 as he spoke to the Samaritan woman. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're not separate spirits. There is one spiritual being, and each of the three persons share equally in his being, in his substance, in his essence, in his nature. And furthermore, while Scripture teaches the personal distinctions of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching um, them to be persons who address one another with individuality, there's also a dependence and unity that is consistent with God being one being. So case in point, there is one will within the Godhead. There are not three separate wills, each vying for their own will to be done. <clears throat> there's no fighting, there's no tension, there's no negotiation that takes place among the persons. There is one will because there is one nature. The, the will belongs to the nature, which is why Jesus, with his two natures, has two wills. He has a human will and a divine will. So consequently, we see with Jesus the need to bring his his human will into submission to the divine will, which he was always able to do perfectly. But with God, one will means there's always unity in purpose and desire and actions among the three persons. And the point is that consistent with the Bible's revelation of God and consistent with what we find in Jesus' words here in John 5 is both unity and distinction among the persons. Now, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit in these verses, but Jesus will later in John's Gospel have much to say about the Holy Spirit. But for now, the distinction and the unity of which Jesus speaks is between Father and Him as Son. And so in these verses, verses 17 through 30, I've taken the theme to be Jesus equal with God, and I've organized these verses under three points. First, equal in essence. Second, equal in will and works. And third, equal in honor. And this evening, we're only going to begin to delve into these points. And uh, we begin with equal in essence. So for Jesus to make the argument that he does in verse 17, that the Father is working and that he is working, is to claim that he is God. Uh, this is not simply a claim to be like God or to be doing something similar to God, nor is Jesus making the argument that God works and God does his things, which involves the rule of the universe, and that Jesus also does his own things that have nothing to do with what the Father is doing, the argument then being that everybody has to do some work on the Sabbath. No, that's not the argument that's being made. Actually, some have had the audacity to interpret this passage as saying that the father here is Joseph and that Jesus is talking about being an apprentice under his father in the carpenter trade. No, the idea here is that the father is God and that the work that God is continuing to do after creation is the same line of work that Jesus is doing. 
Only God can do the things God does, and Jesus is saying that those things are what he is doing. Therefore, he is God. And if you have failed to understand Jesus' point, verse 18 tells us that the Jews understood that Jesus was making himself equal with God. Well, to be equal with God requires Jesus to be God. So, for example, if Jesus is equal with God in power, then he has divine power, which only God can have, which means that Jesus is God. If Jesus is equal with God in glory and is therefore worthy of worship, then Jesus is God because only God is worthy of worship. If Jesus is equal with God in knowledge and wisdom, then he is all-knowing and all-wise as only God can be. You see, there is no mere human being who can in any way be equal to God. We like to think we are God, or we hope that we can become God. That's really the sin of the garden. But that is only the insane pride of man, and, and it's a pride that belongs to our fallen nature. The reality is that we are mere creatures who are far from being equal to God in any way. And so for Jesus to make himself equal to God is to place himself outside of the category of a mere man and to say that he is divine by nature. The point is you cannot be equal to God in any way without being God himself. And furthermore, we have the amazing claims of verses 26 and 27. I want to begin with a consideration of verse 26. I think verse 26, in my estimation, is one of the most profound and ultimately decisive verses in proving the divinity of Jesus. The verse begins by asserting that the Father has life in himself. And theologians use this verse as a proof text for what is called the aseity of God. This is a fancy word for saying God is self-sufficient. God doesn't need anything outside of himself to exist. This creation, the world of material matter, is not needed by God for him to have life or to complete himself in some way. The language of scripture here is both simple and profound. He has life in himself. And this goes along with God being uncreated and therefore eternal. For God to have life in himself means that there was not some other being that gave him life. All of the other living things of this world do not have life in themselves. Nothing of this universe came into existence on its own or continues to exist on its own. And for those living things that are alive, life comes from God. And it's God who sustains life and who takes away life as he wills. It's hard, if not impossible, for us to wrap our minds around a being who exists by his own power eternally. But that attribute, if you think about it, belongs to the very definition of God. For imagine if Jehovah God were created. The power that brought him into being would be the power of God. Nothing that is created can be God, for as soon as something is created, there is something behind that, that creating that is greater than the creation. If there was some other being that gave God life, that being would automatically be God and not the being who received life. And so when you go back in time to before everything was created and you have a being who has always existed on his own, who has life in himself, you have God. 
And the Jews were more than willing to say that the Father is the creator and therefore the God who has life in himself. But what is mind-blowing is to hear the Son say that he has life in himself. Remember how I said that we must keep in mind both unity and distinction within the Godhead. And here we have both in an amazing coordination. For we have the distinction between Father and Son. Where in verse 26 it states that the Father grants the Son to have life in himself. So the Father has a role that places him first and in authority. And yet in the end, the Son also has life in himself, which can only be true of God. Now we can understand how in the natural world, fathers come before sons and sons are born of their fathers. This is analogous to the relationship of father and son in the Godhead, and theologians word it this way, and well, Scripture itself words it this way, that the Father begets the Son. Jesus says, Jesus as the Son is the only begotten Son of God. He is begotten. The Father begets the Son, and the Son as Son derives his life from the Father. That's the Father granting the Son life. But we must not stop there. To word it that way sounds like the Son came into existence at a point in time. But no, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. The person of the Son of God being eternally begotten of the Father. From all eternity within the Godhead, the Son derives his life from the Father. And what is key to understanding the eternal nature of this begetting and that Jesus shares in the very same nature of, as God, is that Jesus also has life in himself. His life is divine life. Within the Godhead, there is the distinction of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, but the life of the Son is life that has always existed because it is the life that God has always had within himself and by himself. Jesus, as the Son of God, shares in that divine life. Yes, it comes from the Father, but since the Father and the Son both have life in themselves, they are ultimately sharing together in the one divine life of the one God. And this matches with what John says back in chapter 1, verse 4, where he writes about the word, the Son, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Because Jesus has life in himself as the divine son of God, he is able to give life to us. He has given life to his, this, this world, his world in creation. More importantly, he is the one who gives us spiritual life, and resurrection life. The book of Revelation refers to two resurrections, the referring in the first place to the spiritual resurrection of regeneration and conversion, whereby the hearts of dead sinners are raised to life. And when Jesus granted you this first resurrection, he caused you to see your sinfulness. He caused you to, to understand and to, and to see that your sins deserve the wrath and curse of God. But he also led you to repent of your sins, to repent before the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, believing that he came as the Lamb of God to take away our sin, and that he did so by paying the penalty of our sin through his death on the cross. And it's on the basis of his saving work that he can and he does forgive our sins. It was by divine power 
that Jesus gave you this spiritual life, this eternal life that belongs to a relationship, a fellowship with God. And then there is the second resurrection, which is also referred to in these verses, which we will get to at a later date, but that's the raising of our bodies from the dead. When Jesus returns, he will raise the dead as only God can do. And this goes along with how Jesus has, as John explains, been given the authority by the Father to judge the world. As God, he has the right and authority to determine the final destiny of all of his human creatures. And what will be all decisive is our relationship with God. And so I ask, are you looking to Jesus as the source of all life? It's only by means of faith in him that anyone can escape his wrathful judgment. Jesus is the divine son of God. As God, he has the authority and power to grant physical and spiritual life as he wills. Do you want that spiritual life that he alone can give? Then seek him. Because to seek Jesus is to seek God. Only God can give us life with himself. And the way to have that life is to look to Jesus. Because he is both God and the one that God has sent to save us. Unity and distinction. Notice the words of verse 24 as we close this evening. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are reminded this evening of what a great, powerful, really ultimately incomprehensible God you are. We, Lord, have contemplated how you alone have life in yourself. Therefore, you alone can give us life. And, uh, Father, we ask that you would grant us the faith to look to Jesus as your divine Son, who, as God and man, is uniquely qualified to save us from our sins. Father, may we understand that in looking to him, we are looking to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, we ask that you would help us to keep the Sabbath, that we would keep the day holy, recognizing that it is a day that is to be set aside for definitely certain activities that involve worship and uh, the, the daily things that, that, we, that we can't avoid. But Father, also we pray, keep us from legalism. Keep us from uh, setting up man-made rules, man-made definitions of work that really do not have anything to do with keeping this day holy. So, Father, we pray that we would honor you as our God, that we would worship you, and that we would recognize that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are God, our one God, worthy of our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.